Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen. Today I'm speaking with Professor Evelyn Brister. Evelyn is a professor of philosophy at Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. And I tracked her down because she's done some fascinating research on genetically engineered chestnut trees. You might have heard of rewilding in the news. I was walking recently at Ticknock, a mountain near my family home in Dublin. And, you know, walkers there can be shocked to see that they're cutting down all the trees. Whole stretches of hills which were covered in forests are now all cut down. So it looks like an ecological disaster. But in fact, this is part of a project of rewilding. They're cutting down these invader trees, they're invader species which aren't meant to be there or weren't originally there, and they're replanting native tree species, the original species which were there before human intervention. And immediately, for me, this is where the philosophy comes in. What is nature supposed to be? We're cutting down trees, we're making some pretty heavy-handed interventions, but it's all aimed at erasing the original human interventions. We're somehow trying to correct for our mistakes and bring nature back to the way it's supposed to be. We're trying to recreate nature and recreate the wild. I think there are a lot of fascinating issues to unpack here, so I approached Evelyn as the best person to discuss them with. And I do ask Evelyn some very difficult questions. I felt as much like a child as a philosopher, you know, I kept asking her, but why? But why? You know, looking for the the bigger and the deeper question all the time. But I'll say that we do come to quite a productive conclusion in the end. We do agree in the end. So I hope you'll forgive me for dragging us into the weeds a bit in the middle of this conversation. I'm really just picking out all the threads I can think of, breaking it all down so we can build it back up. And I will say in advance, sorry for my voice. At the time of recording, I was fighting a cold, a non-COVID cold, thankfully. I've had several of those recently, as have a lot of us, thanks to our weakened immune systems. Evelyn and I did reschedule once. And then when the second date came around, you know, my, my voice still wasn't 100%. But there comes a time when you have to go for it. You have to be pragmatic about things, as you'll hear uh, in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy, as much as me, this conversation about genetic engineering and human intervention and nature and the wild and what is meant to be. So I'm delighted to be here today with Professor Evelyn Brister. Evelyn, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's dive into the most important story for today's conversation, and that's the story of the American chestnut tree. So can you tell us you know, what happened to the American chestnut tree you know, around the early 20th century? Well, one of the first things to know is that the American chestnut tree was one of a half dozen dominant trees on the east coast of the United States. It grew very tall, very straight, and it was very common. Um, it was used for timber. It was an important mass tree for wildlife, and humans collected the nuts. It was weakened first by disease that was brought from Europe. Mm-hmm. And then around 1904, around the turn of the century, there was a fungal blight that came to New York State from Asia. And it spread over the course of a few decades and killed three and a half billion trees. Wow. So it made a big difference in the forest. There were a lot of trees killed. There were a lot of attempts to try to save trees, 
Pennsylvania in particular tried to get out ahead of the blight and cut down almost all of their chestnut trees, hoping that if there were no chestnuts, um, then the blight would stop. It would create like a moat or a barrier and wouldn't spread further south. But it did. One reason it did that is that the fungus lives in and on other trees, not just the chestnut. And so that's an important thing to understand because we can't bring the chestnut back right now because even though there aren't very many chestnut around, the fungus is still existing in the forest. It lives in leaf litter. It lives on other trees. And so so the chestnut is a very hardy tree. And so there are stumps. They're 100 years old. They still sometimes sprout, and the sprouts still sometimes grow for long enough to create seeds. And if there are two of them close together, they can reproduce and those seeds can grow into trees. But because the fungus is around, they never grow long enough to become established. So it's not actually extinct, but we say that it's functionally extinct because there are no, there's no expectation that there would be a reproducing population that would last for more than another hundred or or so years that it's like a zombie tree. Wow, hugely decimated. And scientists are now pursuing two different strategies to try to reintroduce the chestnut tree. So can you tell us a bit about these two different strategies? So throughout the 20th century, there were attempts to crossbreed American chestnuts with a related species from China. There are several related species. Mm -hmm. And so... The attempts to try to crossbreed those trees initially failed until some more sophisticated techniques were used to backcross the hybrid trees uh, to try to maintain the Chinese chestnut's resistance to the blight while also selecting those trees that seem to show the characteristics of the American chestnut that would allow them to be competitive in the forest. So Chinese chestnuts are shorter trees, they have more branching trunks, and they just wouldn't be able to compete in eastern forests given the other trees that live in those forests. And so the, you know, this easy initial idea that, well, we could maybe breed American chestnut trees, make a hybrid with a blight-resistant tree, and that that could solve the problem, it turned out that that hasn't yet worked. And so there are still researchers working on that problem in hopes that there will be some varieties that can be discovered, that can be selected, that will um, be able to maintain blight resistance. Mm-hmm. So that's the first technique. It's the back crossing of the two species to make a hybrid. Right. But now there's a second one, a more kind of contemporary one that scientists are working on, right? So it's at SUNY ESF, the Environmental Science and Forestry School in New York State in Syracuse. There are a group of researchers who have been working for three decades to create a transgenic American chestnut tree. And at this point, there is a viable variety called the Darling 58 that has a wheat gene that protects the tree from the blight. The blight still, the fungus still infects the tree, but the wheat gene provides a mechanism for the tree to block the infection such that the infection doesn't, it can then heal itself, that the infection doesn't then cut off the flow of nutrients and kill the tree. Wow. It's amazing. So, you know, we can, we can insert this one genome from wheat 
and that allows the tree to defend itself against the blight. This small genetic modification to the original American chestnut. And I know you talk about other examples of this technology. You know, what if we could make corals able to survive in warmer water? You know, we could let it keep up with the pace of climate change if we could equip it somehow with this small genetic modification to survive where it's been struggling. So we have this ability, this technology, you know, it's now possible to insert this gene into the chestnut tree to let it defend against the blight. But the ethical question for philosophers is, should we do this? Should we make this intervention and should we reintroduce these trees into the forests in North America? Is this a viable option? So that's that's the question for today, right? Yeah, so it's something that philosophers have been debating. Rather than saying that it's a question for philosophers, I would say it's a question that philosophers can help with. Mm -hmm. Um, We definitely have the tools and resources and patience to think through all of the different arguments and angles and consider both costs and benefits, but also sort of metaphysical arguments and ethical arguments. It's really, I think it's a problem for environmentalists. So environmentalists have taken a position opposed to genetic technology for the most part, uh, based on opposition to crop biotech. So some of the large uh, environmental organizations like the Sierra Club have until recently had a position that genetic technology should not be endorsed. But it's only recently that we've begun to see the radical effects that genetic technology could have that would promote conservation. And in fact, these organizations don't have, they don't oppose the use of biotechnology in medicine. So we might, a lot of people might not realize that a lot of our drugs um, have biotech component, that we use bacteria or even animals that have been um, modified in order to produce those drugs. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this analogy between human health or environmental health. So we allow biotech in the use of drugs that kind of improve human health. And yet we have these qualms about using biotech to improve environmental health, whether it's biotech crops or this new you know, biotech transgenic chestnut tree aimed at conservation and environmentalism. So it's funny that we have that, that distinction in our minds with how biotech's being used. It, it affects our kind of our values towards us. There's a constellation of concerns around biotech and using biotech for different purposes. Could be that the opposition to biotech is related to the consequences that it has, that um, many people are opposed to crop biotech because of the way that biotech is integrated and driven by monocultures and big ag and food systems that have high production in mind, but not community health of farmers or necessarily the nutritional needs of consumers. And then we have other concerns that are not sort of based on consequences. There are also concerns that when we talk about nature, that we'd be changing something essential. And that if we change those things, then we lose the very quality that we're trying to preserve. I should mention you have this wonderful paper called Not the Same Chestnut, Rewilding Forests with Biotechnology that you co-authored with Andrew E. Newhouse. And you talk about some of the, you know, the, the empirical reasons why we might want to reintroduce this transgenic chestnut tree. So there are lots of, lots of benefits from reintroducing the chestnut tree. 
you know, ostensibly benefits for pollinators, benefits for the animals that feed on the nuts, benefits for stability of the forests in the US. But there's a deeper question about why we value these things in the first place. Why do we care about stability? You know, we we are imposing this idea that stability is good in nature and that these animals should be able to eat these nuts on these trees, which should exist in the forest. But, you know, are we in a place to make that judgment? Yeah, so you're pushing me to answer a much bigger question and the questions that I, I typically think that we have to answer right now in order to make the decisions that need to be made about whether to adopt biotech and conservation. Mm -hmm. So at the immediate level, the first answer to that question is, our forests are in much worse shape than you realize, Mm -hmm. even in New York State. But certainly if you take a a larger look, if you look worldwide, our forests are in danger. They're in danger because of climate change. They're in danger because of invasive species and because of deforestation and because of diseases. And the diseases are brought from elsewhere. So in New York State, it's not just that we're missing chestnut and that it's been gone for 100 years. There are also threats to a number of other trees, to the American beech, to the elm, to ash trees. We have an insect that has recently landed here called the emerald ash borer that's attacked our ash trees. There are some threats to oaks, And there are a number of other trees that are threatened by climate change and the way that climate change interacts with insects and diseases. So one of the considerations is getting ahead of these threats to the forest that we value. And that's that's one reason to restore the chestnut because we can restore the chestnut. Mm -hmm. The larger question that I think you're asking is, Why do we value the forest in the first place? Is that it? It's more like, why do we value one type of forest compared to another? One state of the forest compared to the other? You know, one with chestnut trees and lots of chestnuts and animals that feed on the nuts versus, you know, the the other type of forest where the oak is now dominant. I think it's the oak that that has replaced the chestnut in lots of forests and a, a different ecosystem with different animals. So, you know, whatever way we look at it, we're choosing, we're valuing one kind of state of the environment over the other. Right. And that's and, the interesting part for me. Why look to the past, right? Why be nostalgic? Why not um, look to, you know, the, the new plants that have come in? Some of those may, we may be calling invasive, but maybe we call them invasive because of the perspective that we have right now when, you know, from their perspective, of course, they're being incredibly successful. They've found a new home and They've been able to be established in their home, new home. Um, mm-hmm. There's maybe a scientific answer to give, and then there's a more cultural answer to give. The scientific answer is that we have a sense of the community dynamics, and we know from a number of different kinds of ecosystems that when there's greater biodiversity, that that adds stability to the ecosystem. So it's not the case that from the human perspective, every ecosystem is equally productive or equally beautiful to us or equally useful or fulfills the values that we have that we like to see in forests. So I think sometimes we think, well, one tree, you know, one tree could be as good as another. As long as there are trees, we can call it a forest. But those 
those forests that have not had a chance to evolve in communities are more fragile and more brittle and they're more they can be more threatened by fire by insects our urban forests where i live are full of norway maple which is a beautiful tree if you live in norway <laughs> and mm-hmm. of course it's a gorgeous tree there's nothing it's in its in its own right it's a beautiful tree but it's not suited for these forests and so it has a tendency to shade out all of the other plants in the forest. So other tree species, as well as an herb layer, it's not a forest type that then allows the species that have evolved to live in this area to maintain their communities. Mm-hmm. So that's a scientific answer. I think there, you know, the more you increase the scale of the question, the more you can see that threats to diversity upend what we know and you eventually get pushed into questions about well don't you just then have to appeal to your human perspective and your human values and that those might be aesthetic values and i mean my answer would be what else are you going to appeal to at some point you know of course species change communities and populations change over time um and I'm not, I wouldn't say that there's some kind of ultimate value that's greater in a forest than in a desert, than in the plains or whatever. In time, everything will change. But we're here now. And I do think that if we're not going to appeal to human values, then you can very quickly spiral to a place where there's nothing to appeal to. Mm-hmm. And in that case, then we get to a place where it's very easy to just say, well, whatever we want to do right now, let's just go ahead and do it. And I don't think that's really, I don't think that's compatible with the kind of cultural values that we want to have. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I feel like I'm forcing you to answer very difficult questions. So I, I did love the way you say that. All I wanted was kind of the admission that everything is changing, you know, the environment is changing, the climate is changing, species are evolving, and all we're doing is looking at this snapshot in time. There is a certain arbitrariness to selecting a snapshot of an ecosystem at a certain point in time as having value, but that, that's what we're doing. So I, I don't disagree with, with reintroducing the chestnut at all. In fact, I think I probably support the idea. I'm just so interested in teasing out these ideas that we have about what is meant to exist versus what is not meant to exist. And so I'll give you a break from the tough questions for a second. Stepping back for a minute to look at the overall question again, you know, should we introduce this transgenic chestnut tree into the American forests? If we say yes, we're relying on one idea of what nature is supposed to be, you know, it's better if chestnut trees are there. Whether we're heavy-handed or light-handed about our conception of what nature is meant to be, we're doing a little bit of intervening to say that, okay, it's better to reintroduce the chestnut tree and have this state of the environment. You know, there are pragmatic benefits from that forest based on other ones that could exist at the same time. But if, on the other hand, we say, no, we shouldn't be introducing this chestnut tree, I think there's actually a different conception of nature that that, that motivates that answer. The people who are opposed to biotech say, no, you know, nature is somehow pure and unmodified. You know, by modifying a tree, we're perverting what nature is, is supposed to be. So it's really a clash between two different conceptions of nature. And 
those who would oppose using biotech in this case have this idea that nature shouldn't be modified and messed with in the way that we now are able to. Yeah, I have to admit, I kind of have that view too. Mm. It would be, I would be much happier if we hadn't lost the chestnut in the first place. But that's happened. And so while we might like to think that we could return somehow to that place where the chestnut hasn't become functionally extinct without trying, we can't. And I think that sort of reluctance to recognize how fast things are changing is behind the view that, well, if only humans could stop intervening, maybe things could return and be the way they are like supposed to be. But we're in a time of climate change. We're in a time of international trade where diseases and pests and plants and animals are being moved all over the world all the time. And without giving up international trade and without giving up our energy-based economy, (laughs) we can't then, you know, fulfill that vision of nature without human intervention. And then, you know, you also wonder, is human intervention at some level, just just human intervention itself, is that the problem? Because our forests here have been shaped by humans for thousands of years. The chestnut itself was um, likely uh, became dominant in part because it was useful to Native Americans, indigenous people. And I think a useful concept here, or a useful pair of concepts, is humility versus arrogance. So when we're talking about intervening in nature, if we're, you know, humility would say we shouldn't intervene. We should let nature run its course. It should be what it's going to be. And then there's the kind of arrogance, which says, no, you know, we have every right to, you know, we have dominion over the, over the earth. If you're going to take the book of Genesis attitude, it's all here for us, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. We can eat what we want and kill what we want and wreck the climate if we want. You know, it's all here for us to exploit. So that's the kind of excessive arrogance on that side. So, yeah, do, do you see this kind of this arrogance playing out in, in human actions? Yeah, I think I think sometimes the people who want to use genetic techniques or other techniques like translocation, which is also a sort of genetic technique that that's moving one a plant or an animal from one place to another where it hasn't lived before. And then we may need to do that in order to conserve them and in order to conserve some ecosystems where they could be useful. Um, And that kind of movement, those kinds of techniques seem arrogant from one perspective. I don't think the debate is exactly over whether or not we should be arrogant. I think the debate is over what counts as arrogant. Mm -hmm. And so from one perspective, using new techniques that may have consequences that we don't intend them to have um, could be seen as arrogant. From another perspective, having created the situation where we're losing species rapidly and not doing anything about it is seen as uncaring and putting humans first and arrogant in that sense. The debate is often framed as, well, if we try to use genetic techniques, then it's arrogant. I think it's more properly seen as a debate over what counts as arrogance. Mm -hmm. 
I agree with that. Yeah. Can I say more? Yeah, I can say more. Go ahead. There are two different ways of thinking about what constitutes an arrogant action. Um, one is to introduce um, a creature in some place where it hasn't been before, to use genetic engineering, and in that way to create a, a change where there could be unintended consequences and we don't know what could happen. So we could take these actions and do them without adequate care, and that can be seen as arrogant. And it ha- The history of ecology I guess you could say environmental history mm-hmm. has many, many of these kinds of examples where cane toads were brought from South America to Australia and they created, they've created a lot of problems and didn't solve the agricultural problem they were intended to. But that was an agricultural introduction. It wasn't an introduction by conservation biologists. And I think the development of the field of conservation biology since the 1980s is largely in response to this concern that if we aren't careful and if we don't research very meticulously what our interventions will do, then we can be arrogant, right? We would be arrogant in creating changes to ecosystems that we don't want to take responsibility for. I think conservation biologists see themselves as, even when the changes are quite radical, that they want to undertake them in a way that is not arrogant and that they want to be responsible. The other sense of arrogant doesn't just have to do with whether uh, we've been responsible in doing our research and whether the consequences will be intended or unintended. The other sense has to do with the attitude that we have for undertaking these actions. So are they undertaken to satisfy some particular human need or are they undertaken because we have um, we see ourselves as being in community with non-human creatures? Yeah, I think that's very true that we're looking for what the definition of arrogance is. And for me, I think arrogance is actually eating mammals. So for five years, I haven't eaten any mammals or land animals, you know, because I not that I have a massive position about poultry, but. They're just, they're bunched in because I started eating fish again at some point. But I've resisted eating mammals because I just have this belief, a position that we share so much with them, the offspring and mother's bond. And for me, it's arrogant to eat mammals. So I've kind of drawn the line there. Maybe that's kind of a middle ground as to what counts as arrogance. I think we should be afraid of the other extreme, which is excessive humility. So I see vaccine hesitancy as coming from excessive humility. The arguments that I've heard, you know, from people who are hesitant about the vaccine say that it's arrogant to have created this thing which shouldn't have existed. It's arrogant to, to use this technology in, in a way that we don't know how it's going to affect us, even though, you know, we've, we've run lots of uh, carefully controlled experiments and tests. This rhetoric about what is natural. So there are the natural immune responses of the body. And there is the natural virus, if the virus really did come from, you know, a zoonotic leap and not from a lab leak. If it's zoonotic and not from a lab, we can say that the virus is natural. And people who are vaccine hesitant might say, well, our immune system is natural and the virus is natural. And it's arrogant to be interfering with the course of nature in this way. So I think when we're talking about arrogance, I really think it is middle ground because excessive arrogance makes us think that we can just kill what we want and wreck the climate as we want. But on the other hand, if we're excessively excessively humble about what we can do, we kind of put nature on a pedestal because we think that nature running its course is the most important thing and we should never intervene. So it's this middle ground about when to intervene and what interventions are justifiable. 
That's interesting. I have a hard time talking about, thinking about what we should do about these cases or how we should conceptualize them. I don't know that arrogance is such a clear concept. I think it's tied in a lot of times with what we know, what we don't know. And so the things that seem to overstep our past practices seem to be more arrogant. We don't usually say that something is arrogant if we're familiar with it, but the the practices that we consider arrogant at a time when a technology is developing often later don't seem to be such a big deal. Yeah, I don't know what to make of some of the things you just said. Um, Do you think that vaccine hesitancy is excessive humility about nature running its course? I don't even know what to say about humility in that case. There are just so many things that we do to not be passive in the face of nature. And this position is not usually about doing nothing. It's about using some techniques and not using other techniques. Mm -hmm. So we wash our hands uh, because we know that that's an effective technique against disease. We certainly don't wish disease on other people or ourselves or our loved ones. So I think that there are issues of responsibility that are tied up with this sense of arrogance, but I feel like the language of using arrogance often leads us, I think it leads to confusion. I'm much more comfortable talking about the, those areas where we feel that we have responsibility and how some responsibilities trump other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I love your example of washing hands being an intervention because I'm all about it being a continuum of interventions. I don't see any divide in the spectrum of washing hands and I don't know what a middle ground would be, light hospital treatment or an mRNA vaccine. For me, it's a continuum of interventions and there's no line that separates separates them as being you know, different in essence. I think you should talk to Maya Goldenberg about this stuff about vaccine hesitancy. Do you know her or her book? No, I don't. Um, G-O-L-D-E-N-B-E-R-G. And she's at mm-hmm. University of Guelph in Canada, north of me. And she wrote her book about the anti-vaxxers before COVID. It came out during COVID. Okay. Um, and so it's quite sympathetic because, and I, and I mean, I think her attitudes link quite nicely with mine because the, the, con, the, the thought is that just like when, when people reject using genetic modification for the sake of conservation, because in the past they've rejected genetically engineered crops and the concern with genetically engineered crops has a lot to do with wanting to reject a food system that takes control of food away from consumers and also from small-scale producers. And so it's the food system that's being rejected as a whole, probably more than a rejection of a particular lab technique that could be used for different purposes. Um, and so so likewise, for those anti-vaxxers before COVID, many of them were rejecting a health system that dictates exactly what interventions are appropriate for everyone at a time when healthcare is not accessible to everyone. Um, and so there's a political angle. Mm-hmm. And then that, of course, took on its own life during COVID. That's interesting. So it's more about a rejection of having the interventions dictated by this system 
Yeah, it's more rejection of the system and the healthcare system. And if you ask particular questions, what is it about the vaccine that worries you? And and I think, you know, and in all these cases where science opens up new opportunities for us and possibilities. And I mean, it's also created some of the problems, but there is a lot of knowledge that's required to understand what the techniques are and their implications. Even in with what we're talking about, if you have an understanding of DNA and genetics that's based in, you know, like the 1960s or 70s or even 1980s, then it's going to be more likely that the use of genetic techniques for conservation will seem like you're messing around with like a set system that the system has a way that it needs to be that you know in the in the past dna was presented as though it was like a blueprint and now i don't think we think of a genome in that way because we understand better that genomes are interacting with environments and they're interacting with other genomes and so there's a much more fluid system view of genetics. And if your background understanding of just like the conception of the structure is different, then that can lead to miscommunication and different value applications. Yeah, and I know you're stressing the political point and you're definitely right. I mean, uh, I see the evidence for that. I'm just, as a philosopher, I'm applying the principle of charity and I'm thinking of the, the most the most defensible metaphysical position one could have about what would be wrong with the vaccine. And I see it stemming from this idea that it's arrogance of messing with what's meant to be. But I know that, you know, not everyone's going to be thinking on that level. Some will be thinking about institutional control and political freedom and much less metaphysical things about nature and what's meant to be. <laughs> There's a lot of psychology in it, a lot of politics. Mm-hmm. It's all very messy. So let's go back, though, to the topic of interventions in general, Mm -hmm. because I do want to talk about, you know, not just humans modifying their environment, but also other species modifying their environments. And I love to look at examples like beavers, ants, alligators, who all build these structures in their habitats. So beavers obviously build dams, they can divert the course of a river, ants build mounds, alligators dig these things called gator holes, so they dig a hole and then the river washes their prey into the hole and it gets trapped. Uh, so like really simple structures, but it's a modification, it's an intervention of, of the habitat. And then at a slightly different level, chimpanzees and macaques use stone tools to chip uh, mussels off rocks so they can get at them. <laughs> So Jeff, that's all very nice, but it really doesn't <laughs> it really doesn't compare at all to asphalt and <laughs> concrete and Of course. <sighs> well, this is all part of the continuum of interventions. So we have, you know, chipping muscles off a rock with the stone tool at the very bottom, or digging a hole, or washing your hands to protect yourself from a virus, or asphalt, or mRNA vaccines. I just wanted to make the point that okay, it's kind of back to the arrogance that intervening in nature is something that other species do. You said earlier, of course, that we resist nature in so many ways. So many species intervene with the course of nature. But other creatures in nature also eat their own young. And so I don't think we can look to say what other creatures in nature do and say it's okay for us to do that or it's not okay for us to do that. It very much depends on what the thing is. Okay. 
does it not point to it points to something about that humans are just as much part of nature and what happens in nature as any other animal so just in the way that a beaver gathers its sticks and builds a dam when we gather materials and refine them to make a toyota prius how is that different in essence it's it's more about for me the point that i don't want to exclude humans from nature and then our interventions although they're more extreme shouldn't be viewed as different in essence from the interventions of beavers or alligators i don't want to exclude humans from nature either but for for a different reason mm-hmm. which is that i think that we have responsibility for the changes that we make and we also are in community with non-human nature and we're dependent on the old term is natural resources but we don't want to use that term necessarily to talk about living ecosystems but we may not see the degree to which we depend on all of those things being healthy and supporting us I would actually like to talk about the goal of environmentalism itself and in your paper you talk about restoration versus rewilding as two you know slightly opposing schools of thought for how we should approach environmentalism. You know, the question of whether we should reintroduce the chestnut tree, the transgenic chestnut tree, you know, what's the overall goal? So restoration would say that we're trying to restore some earlier state, you know, it's some picking this there's picking an earlier time and trying to get back to this earlier time. Or are we doing something different? Are we rewilding? Are we following pragmatic considerations like biodiversity, stability? So, you know, what what's the goal here? What should be guiding us? So as you know, the language of rewilding, it's being used more, I think, in the UK and in Europe than it is right now in the US. It's used for different purposes, and it it differs from restoration in several ways. But one is that it's more forward-looking, and it also, right, it includes in the word rewilding this idea of the wild. Whereas restoring seems to be looking at back to the past and trying to reclaim something that might not be attainable for us anymore. And this is all this has been for the long time a problem for restorationists is that the language of restoration is to tie our, the goals for restoration to benchmarks and the benchmarks are decided on by picking a date in the past and trying to restore it to its earlier glory. Mm-hmm. So that that framing of trying to restore our natural environments to their earlier state before they were affected by some, usually some sort of human intervention, sometimes as drastic as like mining, but it could also be the the introduction of invasive species. That's often led to management actions that require, they require frequent, frequent input. So um, for instance, the national parks in the United States, in order to keep, invasive species out and in order to support native species, there are many interventions that are constantly going on, Um, removing weeds and um, providing reinforcements to populations to try to keep the populations going, just to try to keep things stable can require pretty heavy hand. One alternative to that, and this is where genetic interventions come in again, is to use various kinds of genetic interventions 
or translocation. So translocation, I sometimes think of as a genetic intervention because you're taking a plant or an animal that didn't originally exist in that community and bringing it in maybe as a substitute for something that's been lost so that it can allow that system to function again as it did before, even though with it's be functioning without the original components of the system. Um, and I think of that too as a genetic intervention because you're, you're bringing in genes from elsewhere. But these are the kinds of techniques that some environmentalists are skeptical about because they're a little more drastic. And once you've made that change, it can be kind of harder to unmake it. Um, and they're active. So the idea is to change the system so that it can then start acting on its own again. These are, these are really interesting management decisions because they're, like, mm-hmm. they're tied to this conception of nature and whether do we want to maintain a kind of nature that we have to be constantly intervening in in order to keep it stable or do we allow it to change but to change in a way, maybe even assisted in changing, but to change in a way where then it can main, maintain its, itself, its own stability, its own kind of, um, yeah, its own stability. Yeah, and this is, you know, I really agree with your arguments in favor of rewilding. I, th- I think I've kind of been a devil's advocate in this conversation, which wasn't intentional, but I feel like I've been picking holes and asking difficult questions. But I really am convinced with these pragmatic arguments in favor of rewilding. You know, we're not trying to return nature to some previous state. It's completely arbitrary, in my mind, to pick some historical baseline because, you know, there is no fixed frozen point in time for the for the ecosystem. It's always changing. And with rewilding, we forget about historical fidelity, or at least, you know, we don't, we use it as a reference, but we don't try to, you know, uh, recreate one fixed point. And pragmatic concerns like biodiversity and ecosystem health take precedence. But someone will ask, is it anything goes then? Is it just like, well, you could do anything, you could bring in the most magnificent creatures from elsewhere and put them all together and let them flourish. And that's incredibly difficult. I think it's quite hard to think of arguments that aren't selfish. I'll actually use climate change as an example here, which is kind of a pivot. But I see I see this um, analogy to climate change, that the climate has been so drastically different at, at all points in the Earth's history. And yet for this one tiny slice, which is the Holocene, we have flourished. And we would not have flourished at any other time almost in the history of the climate. So, you know... Why do we care about climate change if the climate's always changing? Well, because we're absolutely screwed if it changes by a tiny amount than our current band. So the argument for rewilding is that we care about certain arbitrary states of the ecosystem. And yes, they're arbitrary because the ecosystem is always changing, but we have a, we have a, a passing interest in there being a certain way. I think that's a strong argument, but I'll immediately object to myself by saying that it becomes selfish, you know, should, is, this is the arrogance again. If we're just setting up the whole of nature to be the way that it suits us to be, then we can just have pastures to graze our cows and then eat the beef. And why would we bother having any hummingbirds because they don't serve any function to us? So yeah, how, how do you navigate this territory? This is human life, isn't it? This, these are the choices that we make every day when mm. we decide how much to give at our jobs and how much to give our students and how much to give our family that we want to be generous and not be selfish as individuals, but we also have to take care of ourselves at some point so that we can be generous. And 
there's a debate in environmental ethics, you probably know about it, um, between anthropocentrists and non-anthropocentrists. And so the non-anthropocentrist view is that that the source of value lies outside of humans, that the things, um, that the creatures have value unto themselves, not just value that we give them. An example of a really kind of crass anthropocentric value would be like how much I value corn chips and the corn they are made from, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, you know, of, of course, a, a, a human creation. The corn itself is a human creation. It's been artificially selected. Um, but there's a there's a middle ground, too. And I think I would classify myself as an anthropocentrist. I think you can you can highlight the ways in which our values are human values without saying that we need to have nothing but human values, right? Our values don't have to be selfish in order to acknowledge that any sort of understanding that we have of what's valuable builds from, it it builds from what we value in our own lives. Mm -hmm. And so we can use that to develop empathy to then try to conserve things for their own sake. It doesn't mean necessarily that we're putting ourselves first, but it, it does mean that our values give us some indication of what um, what's worth saving. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think if you don't have some kind of middle position like that, then it's, you know, I'm not, I'm, it's like my heart is not bleeding for the dinosaurs. Exactly. That's so true. And your heart isn't bleeding for the weird, like, you know, ant, intelligent ant that's going to live 200 million years in the future, you know, whatever evolves after us. We have to have this narrow, arbitrary interest in the earth and the time that we inhabit. And that's fine. And as you say, it's about, you know, having non-selfish, anthropocentric values. They can flow from us, but we don't need to raise the forests and, you know, slaughter the animals at the same time. So you you want to say something about pragmatism and just plain old good common sense? Well, yeah, I was thinking all of these questions that you ask me, I feel like I'm not sure what I'm adding that's specifically philosophical because I, you know, I'm a pragmatist and I just come back to use your common sense. <laughs> but I think it's so true that a lot of these questions about how we should interact with with nature and how we should think about our place on earth. It is kind of just guided by common sense and pragmatic factors, pragmatic considerations. I don't know the best pragmatic factors to list, but, you know, things flourishing, things uh, surviving. Yeah. Well, we, there's so much, there is a lot of philosophy that you can do at 10,000 feet, right? And it helps to zoom out and get a big picture view of, um, I mean, with with global climate change, right? We're, we're the scale of that problem is absolutely overwhelming, and you have to zoom out to to even grasp it. But at some point, the problems that we want to solve come at us one problem at a time, and they also come at us one conversation at a time, and one regulatory decision at a time, and one political decision at a time, and one scientific study at a time. And so, I do think that getting into the nitty gritty of th- those details and that's something that philosophers can can add that we don't just have to operate off on our own thinking about metaphysics and the 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 most abstract questions about nature but also how do those questions allow us to solve the problems that we're facing today this year 
yeah, they're, they're specific, these problems. Mm. They depend on the context. They depend on the situation. I sometimes say that applied ethics is closer to the work of a forensic legal judge than it is to, you know, some kind of esoteric metaphysics. It's all about the facts of the case. You know, who was the woman? What was the situation? All of these pragmatic considerations. And based on those, the ethical judgment could be very different. And it's funny, you talk about the 10,000 feet philosophy. I think I tend to to kind of veer towards the 10,000 feet philosophy, big picture metaphysics. But I really respect the value of this detailed, forensic, pragmatic philosophy that says, let's look at the facts of the case and see how it affects all the parties. And that's the most ethical thing is how the parties are affected and how we can optimize that. Thanks so much, Jeff. That's such a good point. It allows us, too, to think about values as something that are connected to our experiences in the world, right? Sometimes we have values, we want to cling to them, and then we see what the implications are. And we see that maybe something isn't as scary as we thought it was, or that it has worse implications than we foresaw in the first place. And so we have to be prepared for our values to shift, even, even you know, with new information and new experience. Well... It's been wonderful. Evelyn, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. You've definitely challenged some of my positions in a great way. And I feel like I'm coming away with lots more nuance in the way that I'm thinking about nature and biotech and all these really interesting questions about how we should interact with nature. Uh, So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for your good questions. I think you gave me some good ideas along the way that I need to incorporate into my own views. (laughs) Excellent. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. And please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.